complacency is the killer of every great company. And, and our view is that as a leader, you have to be challenging the status quo. You have to be able to listen. You just can't know all the answers. And I think that you have to open your mind to new opinions, new ideas, new ways of thinking about and looking at an issue. And that I think as a CEO, it can be a difficult thing, but it's, it's probably the most important thing. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute, and today I'm speaking with Adina Friedman. Adina is the CEO and president of NASDAQ, Inc. While most people will be familiar with NASDAQ as the stock exchange where many of the most innovative companies trade, NASDAQ today is a global tech company providing technology, data, and expertise to global financial markets and market participants. Finance is in Adina's blood. She joined NASDAQ in 1993 as an intern and spent the next 18 years with the company. She left NASDAQ for three years, from March 2011 to June 2014, to serve as Chief Financial Officer and Managing Director of the Carlyle Group, where she played a critical role in taking the company public in May of 2012. She rejoined NASDAQ in 2014 and was named President and Chief Operating Officer in 2016, responsible for overseeing all of the company's business segments with a focus on driving efficiency, product development, growth, and expansion. Adina became CEO in 2017 and since then has led the company through a historic period of growth. So Adina, welcome to the podcast. I admire your leadership at NASDAQ, where you're at the center of many of the changes that are transforming global financial markets. So I'm really looking forward to our interview today. So let's get started. And I'd like to begin with your background. You were raised in Baltimore. Your dad was an executive at a leading investment firm. You studied political science before moving into finance yourself. Tell us about your early years. Well, first of all, Hank, thanks so much for having me on the program. It's really great to be here. Uh, I did grow up in Baltimore. And as you mentioned, my dad was the chief investment officer at T. Rowe Price for the last part of his career. So I had a chance to really see the financial industry a little bit from the inside. But certainly earlier in my life, I you know started off thinking I wanted to be an astronaut. I then wanted to go into global international relations. I got involved in the Model UN program in my high school ended up uh, going to college and studying a political science at Williams and Soviet studies in particular. So I, I found that I you know, really had an interest in the world around me. But then I actually decided that I did some internships on the Hill and I, I learned that there are lots of ways you can contribute to the world around you and business is a really good way to do it. So I ended up going to business school at Vanderbilt and then joining NASDAQ as an intern right at the end of my MBA program that I then was able to parlay into a full-time job. So I kind of started here at NASDAQ from the ground level. You sure did, because in 1993, way before you were the CEO of NASDAQ, you joined NASDAQ as an intern. What led you to NASDAQ? And tell us about that initial job. Yeah, sure. So I 
there were a few criteria that had nothing to do with NASDAQ. One was that I wanted to work in finance, but I wanted to be a product manager, kind of a strange combination. And then I also wanted to live in Washington, D.C. And the little known fact is that NASDAQ was headquartered in Washington, D.C. up until 1999. So NASDAQ was structured as a subsidiary of the National Association of Securities Dealers, which is based in D.C., so I found my way to NASDAQ because I wanted, I started uh, as an intern writing product plans for their trading, their trading products. Even then, NASDAQ really was a technology-driven exchange. So when I say trading products, it really meant capabilities they had either inside the markets that they operated or next to the markets they operated that served the trading community. And I was able to come in and, and write product plans for them. Did uh, moved into marketing for a little bit, but then went back to product management and became a product manager within the trading team. So I was really lucky. First job was the job I actually wanted. Right? So that was a really lucky thing. It's amazing how careers work out. You didn't initially know you wanted to go to NASDAQ or finance. These things evolve. And of course, the NASDAQ of today is very, very different from the firm you joined, as is the world of finance today. Many people know NASDAQ as a stock market where technology firms like Google and Apple trade, but it's much more than that. Describe the NASDAQ of today. How has a company evolved since your days as an intern? Because it's changed a lot. And how has your career evolved with it? Yeah, well, you're, you're absolutely right. So NASDAQ today really is a scaled uh, and global technology company that serves the capital markets and the broader financial system. But what we did was we took our foundation as a marketplace. And if you think about what are markets, they serve the investment community, they serve the, the banking community, they serve the corporate community, and we obviously are a market operator. And so what we have been focused on over the last more than a decade now is really expanding those relationships with the investment community through analytics capabilities, as well as through um, our index business, expanding our relationships with our banking clients, with our anti-financial crime technology and execution platforms and other technologies that we could offer them, and expanding our relationships with corporate clients and helping them navigate the capital markets with investor relations tools and governance tools, ESG solutions that really help them navigate the modern capital markets. And then taking the technology that we use to manage our own markets and providing that technology to 130 other markets around the world. So we've really, I think, done a nice job of growing and expanding from our core while still maintaining our core as our focus. I mean, our, you know, we are a market operator. We take that job extremely seriously. And we have kind of three key themes that we really focus our expansion around. It's transparency, liquidity, and integrity. So, you know, anti-fin crime is really on the integrity front. Transparency is really on the corporate solutions as well as our investment solutions. And then liquidity, of course, is really helping every market really create and grow their liquidity in their platforms. So that's how we've, we've focused our expansion. Those three themes are key to anybody who's been in finance around markets, right? So now the size and the scope of the NASDAQ stock exchange has changed significantly. For instance, how much has the trading volume increased over the last 10 years? So if you look at it from a share volume perspective, it's about a 50% increase in share volume. If you look at it from a dollar value perspective, it's about 150% increase in dollar value traded. But what's really interesting is if you were to go back 20 years, so you know, the period between 2000 and 2010 was a very disruptive period for markets themselves, for market operators. We went from really kind of what we call an order entry type of market to an order execution market. 
So you went from kind of human time to machine time. The rules in the markets changed pretty dramatically. So we all started trading every stock. Um, NASDAQ trades every stock in the United States, not just NASDAQ listed stocks. And we also had a lot of more competition from other market operators come in. So the mark, I mean, if you look back 20 years, we probably have, I would guess probably 10 times as much volume today as we had 10, 20 years ago. Yeah. And, and so put some numbers on that. What is the volume? In 2021, we averaged about 11 billion shares a day of trading. Okay. And we averaged in 2021, we averaged about $565 billion a day trading in the, in the US market. So it was it's a very scaled business. I think the other really fun fact is that we own and operate both equities and options markets. And so when we look at our options and equities markets combined, you know, NASDAQ itself is probably is processing somewhere in the range of 70 to 80 billion messages a day flowing through our systems to be able to manage the market successfully. Just, just amazing. And so now I'm going to get into another phenomenon, electronic trading. There's been a lot of controversy around this. Tell our listeners about the dramatic growth of electronic trading since 1995. What has that meant for Wall Street, for NASDAQ, and for everyday investors? Well, I think the first thing to think about is, first of all, progress is inevitable and technology innovation is inevitable. And if you try to fight those two trends, you usually are fighting a losing battle. So rather than fighting against those trends, I think that the markets really decided to lean into those trends. And so as technology was really transforming every industry, Back in the 90s and early 2000s, it was transforming the markets too. As I said, I joined in 1993. So I saw the markets before. We were the first electronic market ever to exist. And we were born 50 years ago. But the markets really, really evolved. And it means, though, that you had we had to embrace the notion of, of hyper low latency. Friction in, in the markets means if it takes time to execute a trade, you're losing an opportunity. The markets might move in that period of time and you've missed out on getting your trade done. Or you might find that news comes into, into the mix. And so... Uh, taking the time from an order to a trade down is was one of the most critical things that markets did as technology developed. We went from probably executing, you know, over a period of a couple seconds or even more than that, because we had an order entry market back in the 90s, to now executing in 20 microseconds, which is about 10,000 times faster than the blink of an eye, is our order to trade time. And it's just an amazing phenomenon. When you think about that, we do that in the context of processing 70 to 80 billion messages a day. It's a, it's a very active and, and different, a different market than it was 20 years ago. I think that you know, the controversy that people talk about is, is the notion of electronic market makers. But the fact is that it's really important to have those highly electronified participants who are willing to take risk in stocks all day long. And they're gonna take risks in very short snippets of time, but they're there to put their capital into the markets all day. I mean, they do it in a very sophisticated way and they're important for generating liquidity. So we do see them as a really critical element of our markets. So let's move to another change the progress. You'll remember that during the financial crisis of 2008, when I was treasury secretary, there was a lot of angst around the need to halt trading during bouts of panic using the so-called circuit breakers and a lot of discussion you know, after the crisis about that topic. We now have system-wide circuit breakers for stock trading. 
How did that work during the short-lived COVID-19 financial panic in, in, in March of 2020? Yeah, you are correct that I think the credit crisis really uh, gave rise to a very detailed discussion and development of these industry-wide circuit breakers. We collaborated with the New York Stock Exchange, with SIBO and others to, to make sure we had a uniform way of, of implementing those circuit breakers. As you said, if you did have periods of, of real duress in, in the markets, and we did see that happen three times during during the COVID crisis, I think that um, it was interesting. So we were the, the way that they do, they trigger when the S&P 500 drops by more than 7% in a day. And so if the, if the as soon as that the S&P 500 drops that 7%, all the stocks are halted for five minutes, and then we go into an auction to reopen the market. And our auction lasts a very short period of time. It's obviously a second to, to launch the auction. We have like a, a quote only period, and then it launches, and then the markets get back up, up and running. The, the challenging part of that was it was happening right as we were sending all our employees home. So, um, you know, so we had to go to a fully remote environment in a period of two days, which we did quite successfully. And right as the, you know, we were all starting to work from home, we had the circuit breakers across and they worked exactly as designed across the markets. I do think that they helped quell some of the, the panic that was you were starting to see in the market, you know, that downward spiral. It, 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 that pause allows people to reassess their portfolios, reassess the situation, layer in their orders in a way that's a little bit more organized. And so when the, the market's reopened, while of course the markets may have continued to drop, which sometimes they did, they just didn't drop as precipitously. So I do think they had the effect that we were looking for. And I think in some ways it showed the best of the United States. You know, when there's a problem, when there's a crisis, and we shine a light on the problems, right? And we move to try to correct them and to clean it up. And I think that was a solution. And it was terrific for me to see it work the way it did. Yeah, I agree with that, Hank. I think that's one of the great powers of the U.S. actually. You know, we compete with each other every day, but when it comes time to doing the right thing for the markets, we're all there together figuring it out. Absolutely. Now, in November of last year, you announced a long-term partnership with Amazon Web Services to migrate markets to the cloud. What will cloud-based markets look like and why is this so important? Yeah, so it's interesting when we think about, as I said before, you know, progress is inevitable and so is technology innovation. And we have very well-functioning markets today and the markets around the world function quite well and we are almost uniformly on-prem. Right. So meaning it's, it's we have our own data centers or we lease data centers and we we carry everything and, and do everything in our own environments. However, I think when, as we looked at the maturity of the cloud infrastructure and how it's really developed, I think it's time for us to look at the cloud as the next generation of markets. And we've actually been working with Amazon and and other cloud providers for over a decade now, really developing our capabilities, moving elements of our trading environment to the cloud, anything outside the matching of trades themselves, we have really kind of moved over time to a cloud environment. And the reason for that is you get instant scalability, which as we all know, during the crisis or the COVID situation, we've had just a massive increase in volumes and message traffic. So that instant scalability is, is actually a, a huge benefit. You get more, I would say, extra layers of security. So of course, you still have your own obligations around IT security, but you have an extra layer of having a partner to work with you on that. And they have very, very sophisticated security capabilities. They also have a, an architected solution, a platform that is what I would call a data first architecture. So you can basically leverage their capabilities and all the tooling that they have to extract the, you know, to to have the data flow through your systems more seamlessly and extract value from that data on the back end. 
Um, and I think that's important in terms of machine learning and other capabilities that you can bring into your environment. And then I think the last thing is it allows for more interconnectivity across markets over time. I'm always a believer that there will be national or I would say sovereign markets all over the world. I think that is an element of, of a nation state. But I also believe that capital flow is global. Investors are global. They want to be able to express themselves around the world in their investment choices. And the more you can standardize the experience for them, the more you're giving investors access to more markets. And the cloud is a big enabler of that. So that's a big background, but I would just say, so NASDAQ announced that we have a partnership with AWS. And um, the first thing is that we are actually moving AWS into our data center. So you'd say, well, Dina, you just said that it's like, the cloud's great. But there are certain elements of, of the most established and most advanced markets today that are hard to move to the public cloud, most notably this ultra low latency, you know, high, high resiliency, high capacity systems. And we have a, a, a whole ecosystem of our clients in our data center. So AWS is actually moving in, bringing that cloud infrastructure into our data center. We're moving our first market into that cloud infrastructure this year, and then we'll be rolling it out. This gives us a roadmap to be able to show to other established markets as to how to leg into the cloud without losing, you know, without taking the whole market out of your own infrastructure yet. I think it's a good way to move towards the, a, full, a full cloud without having to go all the way at, at the very beginning. Well said. I'd like to highlight one thing, one, one point you made. You said as long as you have sovereign states, people are going to want national markets, but investors are going to want to express themselves, you know, globally. And, you know, I'd say that a little bit differently. You're absolutely right. But I would say markets are global and there's no way you can turn the clock back. So as much as you can harmonize the and rationalize the regulation and standardize the products, the easier it's going to be to deal with the inevitable financial crises when they come. And I'd like to move to another area. Because I agree with you, you know, progress is inevitable technology. You're not going to turn the clock back. It, it brings with it certain challenges. Now, as long as we've had finance and financial markets, there have been financial crimes, right? It just naturally attracts criminals. And so, and, and you've identified financial crime as one of the most important accelerating economic and social issues of our time. It's not just emerging. It's just becoming more and more sophisticated, the financial criminals. So why is this so important? And what is NASDAQ doing to combat financial crimes? First of all, I totally agree with your last comment, by the way. I do, markets are global. Regulation is not. <laughs> so yeah. uh, so I think that that's where, you know, there, there's still a road to go on that one. But I totally agree with everything you said. I think with regard to financial crime, within the financial system itself, there's a lot of money to be made in anything we do. And so rules and regulations, uh, a regulatory framework is really important to making sure that you create a sense of fairness for investors. But those rules need to be tracked, enforced. And so anti-financial crime technology allows you to enforce the rules. It allows you to make sure that that fairness actually exists. And we have for, you know, we've owned for now 12 years, the leading solution in the industry for trade surveillance and market surveillance to help surveil the activities across markets and, and within trading, trading shops around the world. And we're the most global and the most scale provider of that. More recently in 2021, 
one, we bought a company called Verifin, and that really expands what we do in anti-financial crime. So anti-financial crime as a global issue is about a $1.7 trillion problem in terms of money laundering around the world. So it's not just that financial markets can attract the fringe, but it's that criminals use the financial system to fund their operations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, child traffickers, fraudsters, it's all about, you know, money flows in order to be able to fund that activity. And obviously a lot of times the criminals are doing it to make illegal money. So the financial system kind of sits at the center of helping to manage global crime, but it's an incredibly difficult problem. You know, criminals, they know how to hide themselves well. They don't have any rules. So they use the next technology that comes out. They're the first to use it, right? So we have to be equally advanced. We have to be equally vigilant um, in helping the financial system protect against those criminals. So Verifin uses very advanced machine learning capabilities. We have a U.S. actually after the Patriot Act, which was an important step for the U.S., which uh, allows for data sharing across banks for the purpose of crime management, which then allows us as a cloud-enabled solution to create a data lake of activity across banks and to be able to root out criminals that use, you know, try to use multiple banks to to perpetrate their crimes. And it, it has given us a real competitive edge. And I think that really makes it so that our job is to help, as I said, to protect the integrity of the financial system. This is a really, really important part of it. So we're really proud to be a a leading provider there. And I really like the way you talked about the financial system being at the center of what's going on around the world. So often, you know, the press would portray it as how corrupt is Wall Street? How corrupt is finance? And actually, I looked at it and, you know, I don't think I was biased because I I ran a big financial institution. I looked at it and said, the finance is at the center of capitalism. And so all sorts of people are going to try to misuse finance. And so the job of running a financial institution or running an exchange is highly complicated. Now, I'm going to go back again, back in the dark ages, you know, in 2006, when I was still at Goldman Sachs, we, we talked about finance, right? But now, you know, we have this evolving market. So let's talk about market structure because back in my day, we didn't talk about TradFi and DeFi. What, what are TradFi and DeFi? What do these terms mean? And how do you see decentralized finance and blockchain technologies impacting the financial system in the years ahead? Yeah, great. Well, it's a really, it's actually a good follow-on conversation from the last one. So TradFi means traditional finance and DeFi means decentralized finance. I'd like to think that we're kind of at the intersection of both um, because we are a very advanced technology provider to some of the DeFi players, decentralized finance players, but we also are a technology provider to the traditional finance players as well. So blockchain, I think it goes back to saying, okay, So this blockchain technology started to come into play. It's an enabler. What is blockchain? What is it? It's really an enabler of of a new way to manage data, to track assets and to track asset movement, right? It's It's a very advanced way to be able to track and trace the movement of assets, to establish ownership, and then to track and trace when the, when the, that ownership changes. And it, it, so that's really at the core of what the blockchain is. But when you apply the blockchain into the financial system, what you're saying is today in the traditional finance world, you've got a lot of intermediaries that play uh, a lot of important roles, but they also create friction in the system. 
And so what the DeFi world is trying to do is to use this very advanced technology to track and trace ownership to basically eliminate some of the layers of intermediaries that are there to do that job today. So that can be in some cases banks or it can be brokers or other people who act as intermediaries between one end owner and another end owner in a, in a transaction. The challenge though is a lot of those intermediaries are there for a reason. And one of those reasons is managing crime. So I think that we have to realize too that there are a lot of rules that exist in the financial system. Those rules exist for largely for a reason of maintaining the integrity of that system. And while not all the rules are exactly probably as modern as they should be, and they probably could work do some rework, they are there for a reason. So the challenge with DeFi is, I think that they see it as a way, I got to get the friction out. I just want to allow for ownership to transition from one to another, but they don't necessarily think about all of the steps they need to take in order to make, make sure that that's a high integrity trade, a high integrity transaction. And that's, I think, where the DeFi world is today is they are using technology, but they have to allow the regulation to catch up to the capabilities and the, and the innovation that they have. That applies to the crypto markets. It applies to the NFTs. Um, it applies to you know, digital loans and other things that are coming into place, leveraging the blockchain. And I think we're going to see a real maturing of that space in the next few years as regulation kind of catches up to the innovation. So we're, we're kind of in the middle of that from a technology perspective, but we're not an operator of those systems yet. Yeah, you're more optimistic than I am. What I found is that financial regulation, it's amazing how archaic some of it is and it, how slow just in general. Uh, regulation is technology is moving faster than our ability to manage it and control it through regulation, yeah. right? Yeah, and, I think that's a real challenge, real and, challenge. And mm -hmm. we really do need modern regulation. And there, there, there's two problems with regulation. First of all, old archaic regulations never go away. That's right. So you're, you're running a financial institution, you're still dealing with that. Plus, you don't have the ones you need to deal with the modern world. Now, you talked about, you mentioned cryptocurrencies. So, you know, we have a plethora of cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and many others. It seems like every week I'm reading about a, yeah. a, a new cryptocurrency. And we see them begin to move into mainstream. Now, one of the many concerns, and I say many concerns because I'm a skeptic, but I'm not going to get into that. Many concerns about cryptocurrencies is how they can be used to facilitate financial crimes. We just talked about your anti-financial crime business. I'm sure that applies to crypto, the crypto world as well. So what role do you see NASDAQ playing in the crypto space more broadly? And how are you dealing with financial crimes through cryptocurrencies? I want to make one comment on your last question, then I actually really am excited to dive into this one. Regulation, if you think about government, and you've been working government, you know, government is, our government, in the U.S. at least, is kind of designed to be slow. And, and it's designed to be slow so that you don't, because the law of unintended consequences are very high, right? Yeah. So if you, if you don't think something through, you put something in place, there could be major unintended consequences. But it's designed to be slow. But technology innovation is speeding up at a rate that we've never experienced in the history of, you know, a history of humanity. So we have a major mismatch in terms of the pace of regulation versus the pace of innovation. And that is going to be a very difficult thing to, to reconcile. But we also have to recognize that 
they're allow innovation to come in, but as it goes mainstream, that's when it, it's, you start to see the regulation catch up to it. But I also agree, we got to get rid of old regulations too that no longer are relevant. Yeah, Dina, this isn't just in finance. I could think of yeah, countless, every industry, countless areas, industries. Technology yeah. is moving faster than our ability to govern it. That, uh, that's the right way to say it. But let's talk about that in the context of cryptocurrencies. So okay. I think you're absolutely right that there are there's some really interesting elements to cryptocurrencies. I think that we have to recognize that it is becoming a bigger and bigger part of the at least the financial ecosystem. I think you are starting to see cryptocurrencies used for real commerce. You know, you're seeing merchants start to accept them as part of a commercial transaction. It has largely been a retail phenomenon up until now, but you're starting to see institutional investors trying to figure out how to layer some level of cryptocurrencies or NFTs or other digital assets into their portfolios. So, but it is, um, there are two key challenges. One is while the blockchain eliminates some level of friction, it actually the technology ecosystem that's evolved around the blockchain, around cryptocurrencies, introduced a lot of other friction points. It's a very inefficient system today. There are you know, choke points in whether it's just the markets can't handle the volumes that they're experiencing. They don't have, as you said, the anti-financial crime capabilities to, to manage the fairness of their systems. The technology in terms of just order entry and data management, understanding the transparency of the markets, it's just not there yet. So there's a lot of friction there. But I think financial crime is one of the biggest issues, or if the biggest issue, in how these markets have evolved. So we have two solutions that we've been we've developed. One is to allow for banks who have digital wallets to be able to evaluate those digital wallets, whether they're a virtual bank, which we call VASPs, or whether they're a traditional bank. If they start offering digital wallets, we have the ability to evaluate those wallets for both money laundering and fraud. We also then have an ability to look at the transition between cryptocurrencies and uh, government fiat. That's a big thing. As they're moving in and out of cryptocurrencies, are you looking at them and examining them for fraud and AML? And that's one of the big things that we offer. So AML is anti-money laundering. For that's correct. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I, yes. Anti-money laundering. And so we do that through Verifin. And then for the markets that operate in the crypto space, we have our our market surveillance platform that allows them to manage the integrity of the markets. So we we care a lot about that, and it, and I believe that this will be the biggest inhibitor. You know, financial crime will be the biggest inhibitor to having cryptocurrencies become more part of the mainstream economy. You're probably right. That'll be the biggest inhibitor. I just believe transparency in general. You know, what's yeah. inside that back black box is at least a huge inhibitor as far as I'm concerned. So let's switch gears now and talk about social responsibility investing, which emphasizes environmental, social, and corporate governance standards, so-called ESG. There has been a major shift in investment strategies in recent years with the emergence of ESG in the U.S. I think it's fair to say that ESG investing originated in Europe, but now it's rapidly becoming more mainstream in the U.S. That said, there's also a fair amount of criticism that has come along with it. For example, those saying that it distracts from shareholder value creation or that it is simply a fad or a tool for corporate image burnishing. Dina, you right in the middle of that debate, as you are with so many other things, because finance is right in the center. So NASDAQ works with both investment and corporate community. What is your perspective on ESG? 
Do you see this as a long-term trend? And what do you think is required to address some of the criticism? Well, I, I do think it has come a long way in a relatively short period of time, but if you, ha you have to start with looking at it from the perspective of Europe, actually. So Europe was really the early entrant into this world of, of really taking corporate responsibility as part of, and, corporate, and sustainability as part of a corporate responsibility. The investors were starting to demand it, I'd say almost a decade ago, in terms of really asking a lot of probing questions to companies as to how they were managing their operations as much as what what results were they delivering and why is and then it started coming to the US and it came into the US very quickly from 2018 to today it's it's matured tremendously i think that you have to start by saying why is it happening and i it really comes down to a generational shift in the investor base let's say you're a pension fund and you're you're managing you know, a group of teachers or employees from different different um, areas in your big pension manager. Well, you're dealing with the next generation of teachers coming in or the next generation of workers coming in. And they have been, they've grown up with a very different world. They've grown up in a world where they, they believe that climate change is happening. They've grown up in a world where they believe that they have a role to play in, um, in making society a better place. And they care. And so, they are asking those pension funds or they're asking their mutual fund manager to give them investment choices that allow them to express those views in their investments. That is a generational shift. You also have those same, that same next generation coming in and becoming your next generation employees in your companies. They're asking, how are you running the company? What are you doing to serve the communities around you? Are you thinking about your carbon footprint when you're operating your, your business? Those are questions that are coming from the employees. They also are becoming your customers and they are very much expressing themselves, certainly on the social side you see and environmental side in terms, of, in terms of buying behaviors. So as a result, companies have to respond. They have to think about it in terms of attracting that investor into their company and attracting that employee and certainly attracting the customer. And, and so I do believe that it's a phenomenon that's here to stay. I think that it has, it's come very quickly into the financial system and it has a lot of maturing to do, both from the investment community perspective and from the corporate community. I think that corporates are wrestling with, how do I measure this? As a company, we always say that you can manage what you can measure, right? That's a, that's a big foundation of being a, you know, being a successful business. Well, how do you measure environmental, social, and governance impact? There are measurements that are really starting to come out and become more, hopefully more standardized over time that companies can use. They also communicate that um, more aggressively to their, to their investors. You're seeing regulations start to come in to talk about, you know, to try to standardize that. And investors on their side, they have to realize this isn't just a way to attract the next investor into your fund. This is a way to think about operating your fund to have a positive social impact or positive environmental impact. And I think that if you really think about it that way, you're going to measure it and manage it differently than if you're just trying to tick a box. And I think the regulation, again, is going to come in to kind of pull people, uh, the investment managers accountable to that too. So it's a big phenomenon. Yeah, I, I think that is an excellent summary, Dina. I'm right in the middle of it because I, the executive chairman of the TPG Rise Climate Fund, which is a $7 billion fund focused on climate investing. And so I've seen the investor interest, I've seen the corporate interest, and I've seen people, you know, that, that aren't real, don't play in this area with a lot of character and credibility. And so what I think it takes is, as you said, measurements, right? And so the fund that I'm part of 
as a separate entity. Why analytics? Mm-hmm. That looks very hard. So you underwrite every investment for the return and for the social impact, and you measure the social impact and you report the social impact, right? And if it's climate investing, the social impact there is climate emissions avoided, right? And so you've got to be very, very clear. But I, I think this is a trend that's here to stay, and it's got a long ways to go before we see the kind of, you know, the kind of rigor that you and I might expect from from all participants in the market. Now, I'm really going to switch gear. Adina, you're a Taekwondo black belt. Why Taekwondo? Is it a good way to exercise and unwind? And uh, do you have any other uh, hobbies. So with with Taekwondo, I um I decided the kids took Taekwondo. So I have two I have two children. They're grown children now, so they're 24 and 26, and uh, they're out in the world. But as they were growing up, they took Taekwondo, and uh, my husband and I would stand there watching them, and we you know we're like, why don't we try it? So we both decided to try Taekwondo as an, as adults. And I really, really, really enjoy it. I think that it gives you discipline in, in many ways. It's, it's a lot of mental discipline, honestly. You know, being able to, as everyone knows, anytime you push yourself physically, it's really as much a mental uh, mental challenge as it is a physical one. I think the second thing is that learning how to take a hit is just as important as learning how to hit. <laughs> uh, and that, and a lot more painful to take a hit. So dealing with that, overcoming that fear is, is important. Um, and then, and certainly physically it puts you, it's great conditioning and, and skill development. I was, I did dance when I was a kid. I was, I took ballet for 10 years. And, and so I actually find Taekwondo from a movement perspective to be very consistent with dance. And I really love it as an adult. So I've enjoyed it. I do not have any other major hobbies, although I, I have been playing a lot of pickleball lately with my husband. It's a really fun and growing sport. And uh, we've been having a lot of fun with that too. Yeah, I just started pickleball. It really is a lot of fun. Yeah. So I'm going to switch now to your leadership principles because technology is transforming finance as money moves at the speed of light around today's interconnected and very volatile world. And we've talked about that today. So how do you navigate rapid change and complexity to lead an organization like NASDA? So what are the Dina Friedman principles for leadership in today's fast-moving world of finance? Well, even though it's a, it is a super fast-moving world, I think it's important to start with a vision for your company. And, by, and in order to do that, you need to at least have a view as to where the world is going to go over the next, let's say, decade. And that might be that you don't really know where the world's going to go, but you know that the technology is going to develop to a certain level. You know, the new technologies are going to come in. So you have to stay very much on top of the technology trends. I think we allow technology trends to help us um, inform us as we're forming a vision for where we want the markets to go, where, what role do we want NASDAQ to play in supporting the financial system. Once you have that vision and you work with your clients to understand it, then, then it's a matter of making sure that you are always challenging the status quo inside your organization. As I said before, you know, our markets operate very well in an on-premise environment today, but we have chosen to make a, a significant investment in moving our markets and our clients' markets to the cloud because our view is that that's where the world is moving. And if we don't start now, we will miss that huge opportunity as it comes over the next several years. Complacency is the killer of every great company. And, and our view is that you have to, as a leader, you have to be challenging the status quo. 
I think that the second thing is that you have to be able to listen, able and willing <laughs> to listen. Being a CEO today in this dynamic environment, you just can't know all the answers. And I think that you, you have to open your mind to new opinions, new ideas, new ways of thinking about and looking at an issue. Uh, and that I think as a CEO be, can be a difficult thing, but it's, it's probably the most important thing. So have a vision, make sure that you are, are focusing on challenging the status quo every day and that you open your mind and open your heart to listening to everyone around you to help you navigate through this really dynamic environment. We also, I'd say the last thing is though, you can listen to a degree, but you have to act. So you can, you have to be careful not to go into analysis paralysis. You have to have conviction and, and go for it when you, after you've listened to different points of view, go forward, move forward, move forward fast. So those are my thoughts. I tell you, those are great thoughts. I agree with them. And, and, and I love your, uh, your statement that complacency can be the enemy of any great company. And boy, it sure can. So, Adina, I'm going to end this interview by asking you to give advice to our young listeners who are starting their careers in today's world. What do you tell people going out in today's world? Well, first of all, go out with great curiosity and stay curious. So once you can start to work, you might get into your job and start to get just you know consumed with the day-to-day of what you're doing. But Oftentimes, if you're in a company, you might be in a role that when you certainly when you're starting a career, that may not be the role you want to have over the long term. So stay curious, go and ask for coffee with colleagues that are in different parts of the organization. Make sure you learn about different types of jobs and different roles that that could be something you'd want to aspire to over time. And then the second thing is say yes. You know, so if someone comes to you and either with a new assignment that's different than what you've been doing during the day, say yes, because you're gonna learn something from it. And even if it doesn't seem like an exciting assignment, you're learning, you're in that learning mode. So you'll, you'll learn a lot from it, no matter what it is. I think the second thing is that by saying yes, you're showing that you're open to expansion and growth um, and new, new responsibilities. And I think that uh, it's the best way to open yourself up to new opportunities. So those are my thoughts. I tell you, you and I see things the same. I have yet to see a really outstanding professional that isn't curious, right? Right, exactly. And, and the most important thing for every young person and for every person is to keep learning, right? You can afford almost any, anything other than not to learn. You've got to learn. So, Adina, you've covered a lot of ground today, which should really help our listeners understand this rapidly uh, changing world of finance. So thank you very much. Thank you very much, Hank. It was great to talk to you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.